Hi there, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. You can find out more at fantasy-animation.org as well as via our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. If you like what you see, then please do support the show by subscribing, liking and reviewing the show. A quick written review, five stars, would be really, really helpful. It helps make the visibility of the programme even more. It helps us reach more listeners and it helps justify what we're doing to our employers. Um, So please, please take a minute out of your life to help the show. It would really help us create more content for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy the latest episode. listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am Alex Sargent. And I am Chris Holliday. Uh, today, Chris, we're going to do the history of an entire nation's worth of animation in about we an are. hour, which I think is uh, not, not an exercise in futility at all. I think we're going to do it justice, and I think it's definitely not going to be potted and abbreviated in a bridge. Sure, sure. I mean, we've, we've, had, we've had stabs at this before. We've, we've, we've uh, attempted to make our way through Chinese animation, <laughs> through contemporary Ukrainian animation, um, and we're going to attempt to do the same with, with Czech animation. As you say, it's definitely going to be thorough and rigorous rather than, you know, sort of potted and selective but hopefully gives a good uh, yeah cross section of, of the kinds of um, uh, themes narratives stories that sort of stuff that uh, yeah that make up make up this kind of world of Czech animation it's going to be interesting to think about different animation processes it's going to be interesting to think about different fantastical processes I'm always keen to think about the imagination and different cultures and different nationalities and yep. I think we've got a range of really wonderful creative playful exciting films to to talk uh, listeners through which are available on the show notes of course so do watch along with us if you'd like um, to see what we're all talking about um, but we luckily Chris it won't just be us we're actually joined by someone who knows what they're talking about uh, we're very honored <laughs> to be joined by uh, Dr. Adam Wybury who lectures at the University of Suffolk uh, Adam is the author of The Art of Czech Animation A History of Political Dissent and Allegory which was published by Bloomsbury in July 2020 um, he recently gave a keynote on Czech animation at the Society of Animation Studies conference um, and he is the co- host of Still Scared, a children's horror podcast, um, and therefore uh, he's a podcaster, so he's all right by our book. Um, Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure for us to have you here. Um, Adam, we've we tasked you with the impossible, <laughs> uh, the impossible notion of coming up with five films to represent the entire history of Czech animation, which you've responded to uh, gamely, and we'll we'll go through those films in just a few moments. But to start us off, um, for listeners who have absolutely no um, understanding or, or or have any prior engagement with Czech animation, but kind of want to learn and want to want to know more, um, could you give us just a sense of of what? The, the, the kind of what, what are what makes Czech animation particularly notable as an animation industry, um, and, and what gives it its distinct flavour or, or identity? Yeah, a difficult question. But mm-hmm. when we're thinking of Czech animation, yes, we're thinking of animation from what was Czechoslovakia, then the Czech Republic, and now Czech here. But 
particularly Czech animation rather than Slovak animation, although obviously there is crossover. But there's a large influence of puppetry um, in the Czech Republic, and that largely comes from Germany. So in the so 18th, 19th century, you had German puppet players coming uh, into um, Bohemia uh, and bringing their puppet plays, uh, often allegorical plays. So uh, Faustus, or Dr. Faustus is one you're probably already familiar with, um, the Everyman play. Um, I say these were often Christian allegories, so they weren't necessarily for children. Um, and I think that sense of puppetry being an art and a craft, right, an artisanal craft, um, is very important in Czech stop motion. And then in terms of graphical or two-dimensional animation, I'd say that comes out of these two branches. One, avant-gardism, um, and it's important to note that Czechoslovakia had its, its own tradition of surrealism quite distinct from Parisian surrealism. And then also the other branch is advertising, um, and a lot of the innovative experiments in Czech animation early on were for advertising films. So advertising soap, uh, you know, laundry detergent, um, those kind of things. So that sounds like a really interesting mix of um, influences that might start to help <laughs> listeners unpack or, or, or get a sense or a taste of what they might have installed mm -hmm. if they were to watch some of these films. And, 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 and certainly the little I know about uh, Czech animation is, is this the importance of puppetry, stop motion and object animation to its history. So uh, we've we're, we're already got a whole century to cover, but if you could perhaps, I, I was interested in what you were saying there about the traditions of puppetry that had come out of Germany. Could you say a little bit more about, about what those traditions were, where they came from and, uh, and, and, and what kind of distinctive style they had? Because I think that I'm always keen on this podcast to think of, of, the, of animations tied to these kind of practices because, well, because I'm the fantasy guy, but it sounds like there's a really rich imaginative tradition that they're drawing from that kind of really helps um, influence the style and, and, and form of these, of these films. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the puppetry, as I say, largely comes from Germany and it's part of a broadly Christian tradition. Um, so as I said, these puppet plays would have been allegorical. So, for instance, we might think of the story of Dr. Faustus over here in England. Uh, we're probably most familiar with Christopher Marlowe's play of Faustus. And Faustus is this scholar, magi, magi character who obviously uh, wants to learn too much, makes a pact with the devil, uh, ends up selling his soul for more knowledge. And clearly, on one level, this is just an exciting story, uh, but it's also got this allegorical dimension um, it has a Christian kind of moral fable element about uh, not giving yourself over in the pursuit of knowledge at the expense of your soul or the expense of um, a moral life. Um, so they had a kind of moral tale to them, but, you know, they also had little special effects and sound effects and, you know, they were exciting too. Um, I think the interesting thing about puppets, and I'm sure you've kind of discussed this with puppets before, but the fact that when you watch a puppet on stage at a puppet theatre, um, the puppet's both object and subject, right? You simultaneously invest in that puppet as a kind of living character in and of itself, but you also constantly know that it's an object. You never forget the fact that it's made of wood or whatever, and it's of objecthood. So it's very physical 
as well. And obviously the puppet has this intimate relationship with the puppeteer's hands. You know, the pu puppet really is an extension of the puppeteer. So simultaneously, it's a way for the puppeteer to act, right? And to kind of act with and through the puppet. Um, but then the puppet in and of itself is very other, right? You know, it's very much an object in itself. Um, I think a lot of kind of films uh, that have like evil puppets, right? Or evil ventriloquist dummies <laughs> tend to play off this kind of weird tension that the puppet has. Or Bing John Malkovich, I think, does a really good job at illustrating this as well. And perhaps that's a good segue into our first movie, which is uh, a film definitely about objects uh, and objects fighting back. <laughs> uh, so, so this is a film uh, roughly translates as what Revolution in Toyland 1947. Um, it's a la live action animation hybrid, so it's it's lots of live action footage interspersed with lots of stop motion. Um, I, I think the rest of it I'm going to leave to you, Adam. Tell me tell me about this movie and and give us give us give listeners a sense of, of what it's all about. Yeah, so this is a film um, a film I chose partly because it was co-directed by Hermina Tarlova, and Hermina, much as Trinka is called the grandfather of Czech animation, Hermina Tarlova is often referred to as the grandmother of Czech animation. She had a remarkably prolific uh, career, you know, writing working right from um, the interwar period right through into her old age. Um, and I think what's so remarkable about her as an animator is the amount of different materials she works in. Um, so she's got these beautiful wall animations in particular, uh, in which she does incredible things with wool. And you know, in, in which it seems like these balls of wool just sort of come alive. Uh, seemingly, you really do kind of just believe that this this wall has sprung to life in her films, um, but also with uh, with puppets, um, some kind of two dimensional animation, um, and there's a real kind of gracefulness um, and I guess a kind of compassionate beauty, I'd say, in her animated works. Um, there's there's kind of an earnestness and sweetness to her filmmaking that I just find like really moving. Um, uh, she was, importantly, um, the first wife of Carol Doddle, and I mentioned that because the Doddles um, were the kind of first filmmaking pair or team um, who worked in animation. Um, so Carol remarried to Irina uh, Doddleover, uh, and they started the IRE Film Studio and did these various advertising films that I, I mentioned, sort of inspired by avant-garde filmmaking. Um, and then Hermina um, started um, sort of making her own kind of puppet films. Um, and one of the first of these films is called Revolution in Toyland, uh, Vizpora Hracek. Um, released in 1946, so immediately post-war, immediately after the defeat of Nazi Germany. And it was co-directed with Frantisek Sadek, uh, who went on to do live-action uh, filmmaking rather than animation. Um, and Revolution in Toyland um, starts with a Gestapo officer breaking in to a toy maker's workshop uh, and the toy maker seems to be stowing away secret messages for the Allies and these block-headed Hitler facsimile toys. Um, so almost like the allegorical message itself being stowed inside seemingly ideological art. Um, he's obviously looking for any clues that this toy maker um, actually 
you know, ha, ha, has anti-Nazi sympathies. And he is really kind of crass and violent in the way that he occupies this space. So, you know, he's shoving toys out the way and kicking them across the floor. Um, and then he looks into a box and this box is almost as if the box is kind of standing up for all these objects who this Gestapo agent's treating so badly, bonks him on the head. And, um, you know, he gets sort of knocked halfway unconscious. And then he pulls out a gun and there's a, a, um, a clock, a cuckoo clock up on the wall. And there's this wonderful moment of kind of animistic uncertainty where he's not sure if the cuckoo or the cuckoo clock is animate or not. And I think this is really clever, right? Because actually the cuckoo... Uh, is animated with stop motion. Uh, obviously, a cuckoo does pop out of a clock, not normally stop motion animated. So it's this little uncanny moment, very subtle, and he withdraws his gun, and then the clock's waking, waiting mechanism like falls down on his head. And I say in my book, um, there's a, a thing theorist from the University of Chicago called Bill Brown, who yeah wrote mostly great great writer mostly wrote about Victorian literature uh, but also wrote about Toy Story um, great essay on Toy Story um, and he talks about these moments in life where objects seem to assert themselves as things where their thinghood announces itself the example he gives is a nut falling from a tree and bonking you on the head um, and suddenly, you know, you forget its categorization of nut and what that means, all the associations that we eat it and so on. Suddenly it's kind of pure materiality, it's being in the world asserts itself. Um, and I think that that's this kind of moment, the clock's mechanism knocks him on the head and suddenly we don't know whether we've moved into a kind of fantasy or if it's still reality, but the toys in the Toymaker's Workshop all seem to come to life uh, and take their revenge upon this horrible Nazi. Um, and a lot of the pleasure of the film, clearly this was a really cathartic film to make and for, you know, checks to watch, I think, um, after the occupation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very um, uh, Gulliver's Travels. I thought that bit as well. Um, I know uh, Alex. Uh, Alex will have lots of things to say about fancy. I, I mean, I, <coughs> this. I loved this. Loved this film. I think there's lots of bits in it that I that sparked my interest. Animation's relationship to the sort of famous toys come alive narrative, which um, I know Paul Wells in his book on understanding animation kind of mentions that it crops up quite a lot, especially in the early kind of early. 20s and 30s going and, and even the, the the bill brown stuff you mentioned i think um if i remember rightly the article is called something like how to do things with, to with how to do things with toys or something and i do remember it's one of the first things i read when i started my my phd thinking about god people are actually writing about toy story this is this is wonderful let's let's get on board with this um but i liked the connection that the film makes first of all well the connection that the film makes between animation and politics and resistance one that the toy maker himself is doing an act that is underground or is itself rebellious or it is self a mode of resistance when he's playing with the with the hitler doll at the start and p positioning the arms into the sort of salute um position and sort of laughing to himself and then having to flee when the officer turns up to the um turns up to the to the toy maker's um space cabin whatever uh so i liked that animation being itself considered an underground practice and and we could read lots into we could read lots into that and the, and the space of craft and so mm -hmm. forth but then it then when the toys come alive the fact that animation becomes this vessel for political resistance and um 
the fact that the officer becomes this threat. I wrote, the officer is a threat to kind of expression and creativity that is embodied in animation. And, and Yeah, and the, the only thing I'll add to that is that I, I, I was struck by, um, obviously we talked about it, 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 there's this kind of slight ambiguity, but it's kind of evoked that there's a, there's a kind of move towards a dream mm. halfway through, right? So you kind of get the animation functions as a kind of disruption or a sort of playful... Um, sense of uh, exaggeration or, or even mis miscommunication, right? There's the sort of, you know, he sees this sort of uh, silhouette of, of, of a toy that looks like Hitler in the window and, and that's kind of what triggers him. And then we move into this dream sequence a la kind of Wizard of Oz. There we are, obligatory reference of the week. Um, and then the animation kind of takes hold. Um, and so there's also a theme that I'm sure is going to, well, does come across in the other films of of kind of the the the, the evocation of mm. dream or, or animation as a dream or or, or, or movements as dreamlike uh, and and that kind of murky world between um, a waking dream and a, and a, and a you know and a hallucination and all this sort of stuff that these films are deliberately trying to to evoke as part of their kind of their rhetoric um, yeah so uh, so it's it's fantastical kind of explicit not just kind of implicit it's there yeah. um, evoked yeah I think that's part of a Reenchantment of everyday life. I'm also interested well. in in the fact that I, I obviously so it's 1946 and just for some history context. So this is this is sort of whilst communist rule is in the process of being established. Is that un, you know it's it hasn't kind of been yeah. codified, but um, but obviously the Nazis have been defeated and we're moving towards that. And I thought that was interesting because because the, the politics of the film are very anti-totalitarian, aren't they? They're very anti-control, they're very anti... And, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, as the lessons of history tell us, I think, you know, what, what will be the Nazi in this film um, evoked directly will, will be the communist government evoked indirectly in, in, in sort of 20 years down the line. But this kind of same lack of respect for authorities, particularly in all controlling, all powerful and anti-creative authority, really is is there on the screen and i was thinking when i was watching it i'm not sure the communist government would have gone with this but then of course it's not quite when 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 power has been completely codified and established so that does make yeah sense. i don't i don't even know if the coup d'etat would have happened, happened by, yeah. by the time that this film was made right. um as you say this is a really transitional period um but it is true that czechoslovakia's history before the Second World War was of a, a new liberal country um, in the interwar period. Um, and you definitely see when Vaclav Havel, I say, is writing in the 60s, and when he eventually does become president, he makes a lot of appeals to the Czech history as a liberal democracy, basically. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, it's true that all of these films um, are questioning, critical, resistant to um, authoritarian power structures. Yeah. Well, there we are. Let's move on then to our second uh, second film, The Hand. So this is yes. Even I'd heard of this. Uh, so so yes, uh, uh, and that's saying something. So um, Yuri Trinka, uh, nineteen sixty five. Um, yeah, Adam, tell us about The Hand. Yeah, I mean, Ruka comes very late in Trinker's career, it's worth pointing out. Um, so, you know, he'd been um, working 
right since uh, well at the same time as Tarlova so um, you know as I said he was a children's illustrator um, but he started off making graphical animations in the immediate post-war period very indebted to Disney and early Disney um, but quickly moves into puppetry and interestingly uh, he I mean he designed and made all the puppets himself um, he makes these incredible set designs, um, obviously uh, he, he directed, but he never actually animated the puppets himself. Uh, his assistant animators always did the, the animation for the stop motion, um, interestingly. Mm. Um, but yeah, this comes right at the end of a very productive and very successful career. Um, you know, I argue in my book that Trinker's films can be uh, read as political and as criticising the Czech communist regime um, but certainly in very subtle ways and actually he was you know given quite a lot of awards uh, and <laughs> financial remuneration um, from, 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 from the party and Trinker knew how to live well you know um, there's a great uh, blog article on um, the late Gene Deitch's um, blog where he, he know he knew Trinker like when he was um, over in Czechoslovakia making his Tom and Jerry cartoons um, you know he was friends with Trinker and he talks about Trinker being permitted to go on these shopping trips um, into Europe and coming back with barrels of caviar <laughs> for, for instance um, so, 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 so Trinker you know knew, knew how to live well um, his films tend to really celebrate um, traditional Czech life, so his early films like The Czech Year um, or Old Czech Legends from the 19, early 1950s. Um, the, the, these films are set generally in the past in rural locations and they focus on Czech peasant living. Um, he then did some adaptations um, he, he, his adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream is exquisitely beautiful. Uh, I think one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Uh, really kind of gauzy photography, uh, just astonishingly delicate puppets. Um, like, for me, it really brings Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, it, it's my favourite cinematic adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream by Country Mile. So that that's on YouTube, and I would I would thoroughly thoroughly recommend watching it. Um, but then his his Filmmaking gets a bit darker, basically, once he gets into the 1960s. Um, so in the early 60s, he releases this remarkable film called uh, Kybernetica Babichka, or The Cybernetic Grandma, which is a sort of half an hour dystopian sci-fi uh, that looks weirdly like a Stanley Kubrick film in miniature, um, basically, about a small child who's taken to a facility to be looked after by a robotic grandma, uh, who turns out to be tyrannical and terrifying. Um, and it's very abstracted. Uh, the cutting rate is much faster than in his previous films. Um, it's a very disorientating film and it's quite disturbing. Um, and then Ruka is his last film. Um, and it's the one that gets sort of taught, I say it's the one that you said you're already familiar with, Alex. Um, and I think that's because it's 
a sort of exemplary political allegory. Um, so it's the story of a little harlequin potter um, who makes these little flower pots. And then one day he hears this sort of rapping at, at the door um, and he doesn't want to answer it. And there's a rapping at the window and what bursts through the window is this gloved hand. Um, and at first the hand makes quite a show of being polite and courteous so you know it, it seems to almost bow to him and it suggests that instead of making these pots maybe the potter should make little models of itself instead and the the harlequin potter's not very interested and sort of shoes him away of a broom um, but the hand comes back and this time is a bit more aggressive and it starts sort of gesturing quite violently towards the potter and again the potter's not very interested and the hand starts getting kind of violent and um, grabs the potter and makes him work at the potter's wheel and make this little hand sculpture um, and uses these various propagandistic kind of techniques of seduction so there's this amazing little montage on a television of different hands so like a bejeweled hand and knight's hand um, you also have um, a hand holding the torch of the Statue of Liberty which I think Trinka throws in almost definitely is a get out of jail free cause like say oh no 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 look obviously the hand represents american imperialism <laughs> you don't need to worry about this as a critique as an american hand um not very convincing to be honest um and then the hand puts on fishnets um and seduces <laughs> the potter and the next thing we know the potter is uh, shackled up um he's i mean we already knew as a puppet but now he's very much um a uh, a puppet with strings and he's being puppeteered to make this giant sculpture of the hand uh, he escapes um, makes his way back to his little apartment quite a lot worse for wear a bit paranoid now uh, and tries to board up the doors and the windows to stop the hand getting in again and eventually in boarding up um, the wardrobe knocks off a pot that was uh, on top of it and knocks him on the head and actually kills him and the next thing we know, the hand is giving the potter a state funeral um, and dressing him up nicely uh, in his coffin mm. before giving what looks like a Nazi salute. So uh, and the kind of plot of the film mirrors Trinker's own fate very disturbingly in that uh, Trinker died a few years after the film's release uh, and was awarded the official title of national artist so celebrated as a great artist by the czech communist party and then the hand was of course banned outright uh, locked away and wasn't seen again until the fall of communism um so yeah. the idea of the hand uh, on one level suppressing the artist's work and then in his death hypocritically celebrating him <laughs> is very much what happened to trinker himself uh, which does give the film yeah. a very eerie disquieting quality when you know that Chris, if you don't now mention the hand of the artist, um, <laughs> I knew that you, was coming. Uh, you're, I've written you're it. Get thrown off the podcast because I th well, because I'll do it just as a. It's only only because you mentioned um, Adam that that Trink has obviously got a kind of very complicated. You know, I think it's very tempting to read this. Well, it's very easy and very tempting to read this mo movie as a kind of outright allegory against communist rule, and he is the art. He is the Potter who is being kind of moved and manipulated by this imposing powerful authoritarian hand um and uh the only thing to, i don't know to wrinkle that i just thought was chris often talks about 
kind of early animation and the role of the hand and the artist and the hand being indicative of of the artist's creativity and and agency and authority the hand is i mean there's a film coming up we won't spoil it just yet where we see a hand draw and a lot on the page so i just I, I was very interested in in of all the metaphors a hand because of course it's the hand that moves these objects it's the hand that 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 animates it's the hand that makes stop motion a craft so is there is there anything to say about the kind of slightly murky metaphor of using an emblem of an animation as also mm. a, as a potential allegory for kind of authoritarian expression. I'll I suppose I'll jump in and then yeah. and then um, defer to, to to Adam. I, I think actually the, the hand of the artist is this long-standing trope that we've talked about. We will continue to talk about. We will have special episodes that will either have been out by the time this one is out or are about to be out on things connected to the hand of the artist and but 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 the the hand of the artist is a trope of early silent cinema is often understood historically and aesthetically as a marker of kind of both continuity and change between a vaudeville stage act into the first animated cartoons that use the hand exactly as you said alex is a marker of of labor to talk about um you mentioned agency um and also in the same way that this film you know that the hand of the artist is about agency control power um and in many ways it's about creativity but but in, but also about the death of creativity mm. because the hand of the artist gives way to an animated character who is who is of course moved by hand felix the cat um, Gertie the dinosaur, whoever they are, but we the point is that we no longer see the hand. The sleight of hand has repa- replaced the sight of hand. So that's an interesting relationship where the animated cartoon or the animated character takes over, and and therefore the hand as a as a as a part of early cinema's repertoire, early animation's um, image repertoire, was gradually phased out. However, it does crop up in various other films. Dan Greaves' manipulation. Um, However, and Duck and Mark, I suppose, is a very good example, the, the 50s cartoon by Chuck Jones. But it's often never read politically, actually. It's often read historically or aesthetically. Um, and it would be interesting to go back and look at some of these early cartoons that use the hand of the artist and go, no, a real, a real political point is being made about control. But I don't, think, <clears throat> I don't think that is the case. However, as you say, it is wrinkled and complexed by a film that is called The Hand. And, of course, my first note, you'll be pleased to hear, Alex, <laughs> is, of course... The hand of the artist! Exclamation mark. So of course, uh, you know, I, I had notes about the fact that he's a potter, which is very. It would be very different if the film was about a guy who works on a production line. Like it has to be a potter because it has to be artisanal, craft-based labour. Like I think that is mm. important. Um, the human hand with the white gloves comes in, and there's been lots written actually about um, white gloves as part of a marker of, of early animated characters um, and the, the racial implications of Mickey Mouse wearing white gloves. But what what I suppose I was interested in how, as you said, Adam, how the hand controls the character like a puppet, forcing him to work and carving this stone hand in a in a cage. Um, but it seemed to me, yeah, exactly as you were saying, Alex, that it's it, call, it recalls the hand of the artist, but but therefore that in itself problematizes what the film is saying about you know what's saying about control and things like this because so often the hand of early animation is considered to be this marker of incredible creativity and dexterity and skill and expertise um and it's not seen like that in this i whether this is intentional from trinker or not the fact is if we read this as the hand of the stake 
state, well, the hand of the state does give as much as it takes away, and it yeah. certainly did give to Trinka. I mean, there's a, a great quote in an interview with Yoshi Bata where he's asked about sort of censorship and how, you know, under communism, you know, you couldn't sort of make the films you wanted to make. And he says, well, yeah, un under communism, um, we were given all the money we wanted, um, but we couldn't make anything <laughs> what we wanted to make, whereas now I, I have the freedom mm. to make anything I want to make, but no one gives me any money to do it. <laughs> So, uh, I, I I think, you know, there's, there's a complex dialectic between yeah, negative absolutely. and uh, positive freedom, <laughs> right? Um, in as much as Trinker was a state-sponsored artist, right? And, and clearly there's resentment there, but, yeah. you know, there must also be an acknowledgement that it was the state that was allowing him to to make these films on some level um but that's ambiguity that 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 leans that leans back into what you were saying earlier about the 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 notion of ambiguity and, and imperfection actually i think that that's part of also the interpretation of, of a lot of these films i think there's there's the there's the the version i guess there's a version of, a, of an essay where a student writes about yeah it's the it's the image of the state but but it, it's interesting given animation's historical relationship to the hand and as Alex was saying, the specific stop motion element that is animation at its most craft based, let's say, that maybe, yeah, just adds a little asterisk to the to the way we might interpret this film in relation to the hand, you know. And as you said, the more broader political climate of of a filmmaker working under a set of conditions where the hand giveth and taketh away at the same time, and it's that ambiguity yeah. that's being played out and kind of thought through and and. Um, yeah, narrativized. I think in the in the yeah. uh, on that point that I think it's worth mentioning that the Potter doesn't get crushed to death by the hand. It would have been very easy for Trinker to end this film exactly with with yeah. the hand. Uh, you can't see this, but uh, Christopher just did a sort of gesture of a of a, a hand thumping I was down. Monty Python and the foot. That's yeah. what I was yeah. thinking. The hand. Um, yeah. Now that's not what happens. Realistically, the Potter causes his own death really i mean mm. it's not as simple as he's just a victim what happens is that the potter is worked up into a state of so much paranoia uh, that he's banging mm. his own cupboard very violently and this banging of the cupboard um hammering the wood uh, against the door is what causes his own pot to fall on his head and kill him um now yeah. he's been worked into that state by the hand but really, this is also about internalised censorship. Mm. Because censorship is just as much something that happens psychologically as it as it does externally. Because I think it's worth pointing out this was made in the 1960s. You know, Czech artists were not being sent to Siberia or anything. You know, um, there weren't really show trials in this period. Um, you know, I think it's very easy to kind of flatten the difference between, say, Stalinist Russia um, across all of the Central Eastern European countries under communism. You know, 60s, Czechoslovakia went through a period of comparative liberalism. And yeah, after the Prague Spring, this period of normalisation, things were, um, you know, censorship was brought back in. But, you know, Trinker's making this film under a period of comparative liberalism. He certainly wasn't really at any risk of being arrested. Um, you know, I think it's very easy from a kind of um, Western European perspective to kind of just always imagine the worst, 
right? And I think it's worth pointing out that often censorship, you know, what was self-imposed to a degree, right? Um, that that there, there, it's more complex than just, oh, I can't do this. There's a sense of, well, I want to get my film out and I want to make this animation. So, okay, I'm going to have to submit my screenplay uh, to the censors or maybe someone's going to look in while this film is being made. So, okay, I won't put this in and I'll, you know, I'll hedge my bets a bit. And you see that in the film itself, right? As I say, in this montage of television images, Trinker is hedging his bets. You know, I honestly think the reason he puts in the hand holding the the um, the torch of the Statue of Liberty is to just slightly muddy the waters. Mm. Um, and when we have that montage of hands doing different things, you know, there are just as many images that could be read um, from a pro-communist lens, if you wanted. Mm. You know, it's it's... You know he's he's trying to play it play it safe. So I I think what I'm saying is I think there's a certain amount of self-recrimination yeah. at work as well. You know I don't think it's a self-loathing film, but I don't think it's as simple as oh this poor victimized artist who has such a hard time of it. I think we are seeing that the artist also um, plays his own part in the game. Yeah. And, um, and it's also which, which I think is what makes it a powerful. I film. agree, and 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 you know I, I, the way I kind of saw it was there's another way of reading it. Is sort of you know it's 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 not so much an allegory for authority versus the creative process. It's it's an allegory for kind of you know uh, the conservatism in uh, of the internal creative process, right? The, the the internal struggles one goes to when one tries to create in that desire to be different and unique and express oneself versus one's desire to kind of formal to follow structure and to be recognized and to be uh working with the system and i think you know I, mm -hmm. there's that there's that reading of it as well right that 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 actually it's an allegory of 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 his process internally as much as it is a, a battle between the kind of the desire of the artist to express themselves and the battle of of some other external force to stop um that expression so yeah there's so yeah. many different ways you can you can take take I the allegory and that's what's that's what makes it so wonderfully kind of fabulous is that that's it is that the simplicity of the imagery or the or the kind of you know archetypal or i don't know what the right word is really of the symbolic nature of the imagery makes it um those those readings possible uh yeah i think guess we should move on al yeah i called you al we'll cut that out alex <laughs> never done that in 100 episodes but fine uh, nope nope yeah so we'll move on to the to the next film and thinking about some of the themes that we've we've picked up there so now, no surprise, this was my favourite. This is uh, this <laughs> is Jabberwocky by uh, by Jan Svankmeyer, 1971. Now, hadn't seen it before. Have seen his adaptation of Alice because you know uh, I'm a fantasy media scholar. It's kind of part of the part of the deal. Um, but but yeah. but uh, hadn't seen this one to my shame and found it fascinating. Starts with the Lewis Crack Carol poem, which we might talk about, uh, and then offers a kind of what loose adaptation or poetic visualization or frankly just something else entirely um uh that that seems both uh i've written both assaultive yet also playful um in kind of its tone and delivery so unpack this one for us adam uh, the jabber well i was gonna say alex I, I think it starts i might be wrong but doesn't it start with a bottom being smacked starts with the bottom <laughs> being smacked sure 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 sure. importantly i would yeah, say yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah and, and we'll start with that and go from there um. i mean schwankmar says this is 
simply, <laughs> simply uh, the psychosexual development of a child, okay. which makes sense to me. Um, I don't think it exhausts it as a reading, um, but um, it's clearly a film concerned with the period in which Alice in Wonderland was written, right? So it looks like it's a Victorian or maybe Edwardian playroom that we've got. So the film is filled with these antiquated objects that Schwenkmeyer must have picked up over the years from flea markets and antique fairs, etc. And these are objects that really kind of wear the signs of dilapidation on them. Um, so in some level, the film is itself a little museum of childhood. You know, it's a little uh, cabinet of curiosities of these fabulous kind of children's toys and puppets and objects that Schwankmar has, has collected. Schwankmar is a filmmaker who wears his infantile destructive impulses and his anxieties on his sleeve, right? And this to me feels like a film that's that's working through on some level um aesthetically and productively uh childhood infantile childhood impulses um so as i say we start with the image of a smacked bottom right the 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 the, the most you know i think for for anyone who's ever been spanked or smacked or anyone who ever even had that threat or that sense as a child that was on the cards or a possibility right it's a great image because it immediately you know we cut to it it's not a kind of image you tend to see very much and that is a very jolting image uh, as Frankmar's editing often is um and i think immediately it gets you into that headspace of being a child and being scared of adult authority and so much of the experience of being a child, you know, and this is true even if you have the loveliest parents, I think, and the loveliest school, is one in which you have to defer to adult authority. And there are all these weird rules around you that make no sense to you whatsoever, and you are told you have to follow them. You have to go to bed at a certain time. You have to do this. You have to do that. If you don't, you will be punished. Um, so this film is about how a child's unfettered imagination um, in which reality and fantasy are very blurred. Uh, Melanie Klein uses the term fantasy with a PH um, about how this state is drained from a child uh, as they're socialised into adulthood, basically. And he's using the Victorian setting as the kind of uh, uh, example, the exemplar of this patriarchal socialisation process. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I, I really wanted to talk about surrealism with this one because, I mean, I, I, hey, I was just in heaven there. Melanie Klein, Jabberwocky, this is all my kind of stuff. So uh, I'm on board. Um, the, I didn't quite think about it in that kind of developmental process, but it completely makes sense what you're saying there. And I can see that reading being very persuasive. I thought about it slightly more on just kind of a basic kind of... Uh, well, I thought about it in relationship to the poem. And obviously the poem... You know, famously, "Twas Bullock and the Slithy Toad did grire and grimble in the wave." Like it's 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 a poem that makes no sense and yet makes complete sense at the same time. It's a poem that's kind of been read as a kind of proto example of surrealism because what it's doing with language is is kind of simultaneously showing us the emptiness of language and that it can construct these fake words and fake signifiers that that don't mean anything but but sound as if they do. 
um, and yet also kind of show the overdeterminacy of language in that anything can mean anything mm. because it's symbolic. Um, so, so I was thinking about that in relationship to what Svanquil might be trying to do with this, and it just, I just, I, so many things that we talk about on this podcast are described as surreal and and never usually. Um, properly or adequately or with much <laughs> reference to the history of that term but but i know that svank meyer was did identify as a surrealist right and and, oh, and still does and still does okay yes because he's, he's still he's 89 now but but gladly still with us and um and just how does the role of surrealism fit in either with svank meyer's work or kind of with 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 czech 1970s culture or, or, or mid-century culture and, and how might that help us understand this a bit better? Okay, well Schrankmeier divides his career into two periods. So he calls his first period when he was working in the 1960s his Mannerist period um, and he sees this period as when he was largely influenced by Giuseppe Archimboldo. So Archimboldo uh-huh. um, did those composite paintings like the faces made of fruit for instance, and these films tend to be structured very rigorously um, according to Sergei Eisensteinian editing. Okay. Um, and they they often work like little clockwork systems, um, and they're Schrenkmeier kind of working through his obsessions, often as a collector um, and a formalist. And then he was... He wasn't banned from filmmaking exactly, um, but pressures were put on him uh, and he was unable to secure funding for f- filmmaking um, in much of um, the 19- 1970s. So this was one of the kind of um, last films he made for a while. Um, he then went back with adaptations. I think often often um, a filmmaker who kind of wants to do something political but is... Uh, being constrained by the regime, uh, often turns to adaptations. You know, Trinka does this, Schrankmeier does this. Schrankmeier started doing Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, which are amazing. Um, but in, I think it was 1970, Schrankmeier joins the Czech Surrealist group. And for him, that marks a complete turning point in his work. I think partly because then he's with a group of like-minded individuals. And for Schrankmeier, surrealist is not an art historical term and it's not an aesthetic term. It shouldn't be described as a style is a way of being and a way of living you know it, it's it's more than that um and to be a surrealist is to live surrealist as a surrealist alongside and with other surrealists um with the surrealist group you can almost think of it as a parallel polis right as like a little world in and of itself i think to a degree um the surrealists the czech surrealist group they're a little enclave, right? right? You know, a little club or a little group um, who find liberation through the imagination. And so I think it's important to see his filmmaking as becoming just part of that, right? I, I, I don't think Schrankmeier would see himself first and foremost as a filmmaker or an animator. He'd see himself first and foremost as a surrealist. Right. I'm really interested in this... Um issue of mannerism I, I one of the chapters in my book is about mannerist comedy in the computer animated film and, and looking exactly at those um Archimboldo um paintings uh, spring summer autumn winter there are there are mm. many others that are um about the uh, 
the composite or bringing together fruit and veg. And they, well, there's even a, a character from a computer animated film, The Tale of Despero, uh, called Baldo, who is made up of vegetables. He's like a <laughs> sentient kind of grouping of, of vegetables. One of the things I remember doing some research and thinking about um, uh, a, a, a mannerist scheme or, or a mannerist way of presenting information that is um, that goes under the term asyndeton, the sort of um, collage effect. You mentioned you mentioned um, Eisenstein, but this kind of collage effect that is literary, where um, one or several, one or more conjunctions are deliberately omitted from a series of clauses. So you um, you find it a lot in political speeches, but you remove the the or an a to make things punchier. And and, and while it looks a little bit fractured, it, it kind of still makes sense. The the coordinators are missing, but the the, the conjoined are still kind of make sense and become coordinated. Anyway. Um, this is perfect for a nonsense poem. Well, one, I think it's it's mannerism has often been. If you if you Google this literary technique and mannerism, you get um, Roger Fowler saying mannerist style is hermetic and in, uh, ingenious, full of paradoxes and puns, a syndeton hyperbole, um, um, and pleonasm. So essentially. I think one of the things that I like about Archimboldo's paintings are they are the conjunction of lots of things pulled together. They're kind of an artistic version of this literary practice. In the case of Jabberwocky, which is this nonsense poem that seems well served by animation more generally, because it's the kind of cumulative effect of all these different things that might appear unconnected, but actually, or disconnected, but actually they still they still kind of make make sense um, and so you pair things together that shouldn't be paired together but actually there is a coordination or a coordinated relationship between these things um, so I put Carol's nonsense poem is well served by the animated form uh, kind of thinking through the porcelain dolls versus the somersaulting knives and how humanity is because humanity or anthropomorphism is imbued into both i.e. things that look recognizably human but also things that become human-like, there's a sort of connection or there is a connection made um, uh, between between porcelain dolls and, and yeah, knives or self-folding paper as the film um, presents. And so I, I was thinking more broadly about about what, what something like Jabberwocky and Svankmar and, and perhaps Eastern European animation more broadly, when we talk of anthropomorphism and, and we're not really talking about anthropomorphism because of its the, these kind of mannerist sensibilities, these surrealist qualities. And I know that there's a book written about Svankmeyer called A Mannerist Surrealist, which kind of brings together exactly those two phases that you're talking about. But I, I had a kind of, I had one note, which was sentience becomes resistance. These are films about anthropomorphism, but they're also about life and dying and what can have a soul and why and what is automatic and what labours and what is smooth and all these other things that sort of get swept under the carpet when we talk about anthropomorphism but actually in a film like Jabberwocky where so much of the world is open and all these um, objects that have a use before they came to the film and will have a different kind of use after the film because the film brings them together in this sort of disconnected way um, it means that we're not just talking about anthropomorphism, we're really talking about all these really exciting kinds of bigger questions about vitality and the soul. And, and that's why I really like these kinds of, they're often impenetrable, I think, and a lot of students and a lot of audiences and might be like, I don't quite kind of get it. And I definitely reround and watched a lot of them again because I was trying to make these kinds of connections, which I think is why they're so interesting to, to, to interpret and to kind of think through. Um, but that was my my kind of thought on it that humanity becomes this bigger question that these films um yeah kind of open up really 
Let's move on to our fourth film, because I'm, I'm conscious of time, which is yes, uh, yeah. The Design, uh, which I did not know about. Uh, Yuri, Yuri Barter, 1981. So we, we, we've, we're now we're in a slightly different period. We've gone from the 60s, we're in the early 70s, now we're in 1981. Um, this is the shortest film that you've uh, asked us to watch. Um, what's the design all about? Okay, so the design um, is about Panelac apartments, basically. So the kind of communist equivalent of prefab apartments, um, which have sprang up in the communist period. You can still see quite a lot of them in the Czech Republic. Um, and it's basically an architect's drawing board. Um, drawing out these apartments and then having to cut life down to size. Um, so we, we, we see, uh, say, a peasant with his goat or something which has to be snipped and then is transformed into a dog. Um, yeah, uh, cer certain bookshelves are too long for the apartment and again have to be um, have to be cut down to size and at first all the different apartment dwellers uh, have their own kind of rhythms and their own music and melodies and these kind of get flattened sadly into um, homogenous nothingness. Um, I think Barter as an animator, I think Barter's really overlooked actually as an animator, I don't know if it's because all of his films are quite different, it's quite hard to discuss as an auteur and I think that kind of bias consumers have for auteurism and and perhaps even you know a certain number of film mm -hmm. academics and film teaching um, means I think he gets overlooked because his film style changes so much um, but he does have thematic interests which you can see throughout his films and I think his main interest is in how space and time conditions human behaviour which may seem like a kind of big abstract <laughs> kind of interest, um, but I think actually he really manages to communicate this idea in quite a straightforward way. And I think the design is about how designs impose ways of living and ways of being in the world. And that if you have um, architecture which really reduces people's um, imaginative freedom and just ways of living, then you have reduced living, you have reduced lives. Um, I think Barter often feels that people should return to kind of more natural rhythms. Um, a Ballad About Green Wood, which is probably my favourite of his films, is really um, a kind of celebration of the rhythms of nature and how variegated the rhythms of nature are. Whereas he tends to be very suspicious of clock time. I don't know if he has trouble getting out of bed in the morning or he, he just hates <laughs> having to work to work to a schedule but um clocks and watches tend tend to be very negative symbols in barter's filmography um and yeah. uh yeah things that are are restrictive of human freedom okay actually adam on that note of of rhythms the way i encountered your work um I'd, I've re recently been looking at, uh, at rhythm analysis and, and looking exactly at, at this kind of interplay between, I guess, cosmic and linear rhythms, different mm -hmm. ways of, of kind of um, uh, living through the world. And, and, and a recent podcast we did live at the BFI on or, on your name, still available. Oh. Uh, I talked a little bit about this, but um, the, w the way that I came to it was actually through your book on, on Czech animation, because you talk about 
you talk about rhythm and and that sort of got me into thinking about rhythm analysis and and the production of space and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I, I wonder. Yeah, 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 analysis. exactly. So knowing, I mean, given what the design is about and the sort of positioning of characters in a series of of a rigid regimented apartment blocks um so the film begins with the same sort of hand of the artist trope that we've kind of talked about which is a nice and, and actually recurs throughout the film as the as the hand comes in and places all these different ornaments in particular kinds of of, of um kind of domestic spaces so you get bookcases sofas paintings on the wall that sort of stuff um what is this film saying about rhythm because you have all these these I, I want to say anonymous lives or anonymous bodies and anonymous um, homes that are placed in this in this grid, this architecturally designed grid of um, of spaces. How does that link in with rhythm? Because I I, I like the way that he, the way that Lefebvre talks about it, the way that you talk about it, how we are positioned as a, a, the convergence of different kinds of rhythms. So this film and, and animation itself being a kind of rhythm um, is often talked about as as rhythmical. Um, why is the design? Bart is the design so good for thinking about rhythmical existence, let's say? Well, I think it's a critique of rhythms being opposed from top-down ideology, yeah. basically. Um, so I think the Panelac apartment building is could it, an embodiment of communist ideology, yeah. um, in as much as they're all the same, Right, they're yeah. very efficient uh, to construct. Uh, that they're utilitarian, right? Um, and if you have a society structured around use value, basically, mm -hmm. and you know, I think capitalist society is just as much structured, if not more, structured around use value and capital, right? Um, communism, I think, is equally concerned with use value uh, in, in in a different sense. Um, but I think Barter is saying that a society that's structured around use value um, restricts rhythms um, because it wants everything to be efficient, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and that makes for um, it makes for stop-start rhythms, basically, yeah. because rhythms. If we want something to be efficient, we need to be able to measure it. Mm basically. You know, to be able to say how efficient something is, we need to be able to measure it. And that means being able to say when it stops, when it starts. You know, it can't be something that flows and transforms in a way that's hard to track. It's got to be something that we can put a start point and an end point, that we can get our ruler out and be able to chart. And that's what he's saying about these buildings, that they're very chartable and that they're they're measured exactly to the nth of a degree of their life and that this is then imposed on the lives of the citizens. Um, and so a lot of things we do in our everyday life, they don't have obvious use, right? A lot of the time we fritter away our time in ways that aren't useful, right? A lot of what we do in our everyday life isn't useful, right? You know, and whether that's something like standing and staring at a tree or you know, the objects that we put in our apartment just because we think they look nice. Um, sometimes we have a bunch of clutter, we don't even know why we have it, mm. right? Um, and, you know, then Marie Kondo would, would, would come in and say, well, you know, no, we, we should know, what, we should know what, what purpose this serves in our life. But I think Bart is really resistant to this idea that things should have a purpose. Well, 
why should they? Like, a lot of nature is actually messy. You know, people always talk about nature being designed, right? And people say, oh, such as just like... I hear these arguments all the time about uh, vegetarianism versus eating meat. And people say, no, no, we're designed to eat meat. Or, no, we're designed not to eat... And we're not designed at all. Like, mm. evolution is random freak mutations and happenstance, some of which work out. You know, and some of which, you know, get left over, like our vestigial tails, right? <laughs> like... There's lots of chaos and randomness in nature and in life. And I think Bart is saying that these rhythms are messy, right, and intersecting, and that they're hard to measure. Yeah. Because yeah. I think I think it, it's life has been killed, basically, as far as Bart is concerned. Because, you know, once you get rid of the messiness of rhythms and the intersecting rhythms, I think Bart feels like we what you're left with is a corpse. <laughs> basically, you know, you've chopped up life. Right, last film. Yeah. Um, so, um, A King Had a Horse. So now we're in uh, 2011, am I right? Um, so we, yes. We're, we're, we're post-fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, this is more of a flavour, I guess, of, of the state of contemporary um, Czech animation, but you would yeah. you'd be better judged to tell me that, so tell listeners that than I am, Adam. So, yes. Uh, a King yeah, had that, a horse. that was the idea. Um, so this is a film I discovered through Annie Oint, uh, I don't know if you've gone on Anyoint before, it's a Czech site, um, but I find it a really valuable resource. Um, a lot of the films that are made by students at FAMU uh, and by animation, Czech animation students and animation students across the world uh, end up being um, distributed through Anyoint. So it's an online, free online streaming platform and I found lots of really amazing work on there. Um, but I was particularly impressed by Alice Packner's The King had a horse and it's a very hard film to describe but um, yep. <laughs> it, it, it's on some level it's a power struggle between a uh, tyrannical medieval style king and his jester um, but I think also it's as much a film as it is a mechanism um, what I really like is it almost looks like a kind of horrible... I don't know if you ever had to make a cam toy um, in D&T. When I was at school, I had to make a cam box. So, you know, you had to make a few, like, cam wheels and then, like... Um, you're, you're giving me wooden, very vivid I'm... and very uh, upsetting <laughs> flashbacks of, of such a practice. Yes, I did have to do that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I had to, I did one with, like, a frog, which would sort of try to leap up to get a, a fly which circled around it endlessly. Um, but to me, it looks like a kind of <laughs> monarchical monstrous cam toy come to life uh, this film so it, it's almost like you've got this sort of strange like like the whole kingdom of the king mm. like takes place in these different rooms which are all interconnected like some kind of horrible mechanism of pipes um, basically so um, and what happens in these rooms is quite obscure so there, there's one room where there are these sort of spherical balls um, with, 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 with faces on and they kind of get stamped and then some of them aren't good enough and they get sliced up and then taken through the pipes into another chamber and and the king also has this horse which uh, he sort of entertains himself with which sort of runs on it endlessly and it looks a bit like uh, my bridges um you know, mm. horse at the birth of animation which i'm sure <laughs> christopher's nodding there so i'm sure that occurred to you already yeah but yeah, yeah, I just think visually, and everything's articulated. I mean, you can see the articulation of all of all the puppets as well. You can see, you can see the joints. Um, so, 
one thing I find really fascinating about it is like whether you're kind of relating to these objects or puppets as a whole as like okay this is a king or whether you're just looking at its individual parts like this is the tongue you know um like everything seems almost disarticulated like you is really you almost see the fragments before the whole yeah. when you watch yeah. it which i find really interesting but yeah um I, yeah. i've just not seen anything I, like it i think it's i think it's really amazing <laughs> I thought it was an amazing kind of mix of, of you know, obviously the, the sophistication of the stop motion is more reminiscent of the kind of contemporary standards set by studios like Leica and things like that. But at the same time, it maintain, maintains a lot of the of the themes we've been talking about. Um, there's an interest in objects. We have objects that look like people, objects that are people, objects that are used by people. There's balls with faces on them and machines with faces. And, and there's this kind of collapse and, and, and merging of the self with the objects throughout all of it that's kind of really, you know, we, we've already been talking about how important all these things are to kind of the history of, of Czech animation. But nice to see it used in, in, in a new and... and, and 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 yeah more vibrant and and perhaps more clean in terms of just the animation way and i'm not sure mm. that's something to celebrate or lament but it but it was a, an interesting mismatch of the old and the, and the new with me and yeah it was very um uh, vivid on screen in your in your book um adam i know you talk about it as this sort of allegory of um of power relations and how that notion of power and humanity maybe an agency is then played out exactly through what you say this sort of quasi steampunk um, objects as characters but also explicitly fragmented and disarticulated and, and perhaps what that then means for an audience who is trying to kind of cobble together this story of fragments that relate to an, uh, you know this clash between a, a king and a, and a jester I mean I just I, I had notes on kind of objects and pulleys and skulls and these kind of monstrous characters but still recognizably human I, like the way that the, the, the drama of the narrative works is that we need to read them as broadly as, as, as sort of humor and, and actually reminded me of something that you said you either said it at the start when we recorded it or before we started, which is about this sort of suspicion of technology, which I think plays out in lots and lots of different ways across lots yeah. and lots of the films that we've looked at. Um, animation as a, a animation's relationship to technology, animation is often the forefront of certain pioneering technology, technological in innovations. Animation itself as a technology of reproduction. Um, but then a lot of these stop-motion films are suspicious of... of technology and industry and labor and and or at least raise questions about these things so i thought it was a nice summation of perhaps some of the values whether these whether whether the film is engaging with sentient space as much as it is sentient characters playing with notions of humanity uh, a few really interesting camera movements as well i, I noticed but yeah i mean it, i think it summar summarizes a lot of what or some of the threads that we've we've kind of mm. talked about and you've you've pulled out through some of this this kind of cross section of of film so it's a really good one to to end on and perhaps is a nice way of thinking about what what the modern era as so many animation national histories mm. are divided up into eras what the modern era has in com has in conversation with what we would call the sort of formative era and then the golden age in which so many of these filmmakers are working trinker Svankmar and so forth so yeah good one to to end on i thought so, um, 
to finish off, before we let you go, um, Adam, after what was uh, an expertly guided journey through through, yeah. through through a lot of complicated but very sort of fascinating um, bits of history and different types of artists. I mean, there's a every artist we've mentioned thus far, and every film really could could have been its own episode and could have been uh, and probably will be the subject of future episodes. So thank you very much for at least sort of giving us that taster um, uh, there. Um, yeah, but before we let you go, you, you have your own podcast. Uh, so we're talking to a seasoned professional, unlike us two, uh, <laughs> us two charlatans. So, so Adam, uh, oh God. Uh, what's, what's, um, tell us about the podcast and tell the listeners where they can um, access it if they should wish. Okay, so yeah, my podcast um, is Still Scared, Talking Children's Horror. Um, so we've been going for a few years now. Um, we release an episode once a month, and it's basically two millennials, or ageing millennials, <laughs> talking uh, about kids' horror. So children's horror that's sort of spooky, creepy, or unsettling. Um, we range from books, films, TV, very occasionally video games. Um, because we're both, you know, kids of the 90s, uh, we tend towards things like Goosebumps, um, say um, we've discussed a lot of those kind of classic uh, dark fancy 80s films like Return to Oz which we're both big fans of. Um, we talk about some modern releases as well. Um, obviously there's a lot of kind of dark young adult fiction that's around these days. So it's me and my co-host Ren Wednesday. Um, you can listen to it on Podigy is where we put it up first. Um, so it's still scared on Podigy or else it's also on Apple Podcasts and it gets re-uploaded on various places. Uh, so if you look for Still Scared Podcast, you can find it easily. Smashing. Thank you. We, we will do so and we encourage listeners to do the same. Um, sounds, sounds, sounds great. Sounds right up our alley. Um, and of course your book, um, The Art of Czech Animation, is still available if people want to access that. Uh, give, it a, give it a Google and I'm sure you'll find it. Um, otherwise, Adam, thanks so much again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, you can find us, of course, at fantasy-animation.org. I'm sure there's stuff on some of the people we've talked about in the blog, Chris. We must have done some Svankmire and some Trinker in the past, right? Yeah, there's certainly some bits on stop motion, and, and depending on when this goes out, there may, not, may or may not be some, some more stuff um, in the archives. So definitely have a little look through and, and, and search for, for stop motion and see what pops up. And if you think we're not doing enough, then all you've got to do is email us, fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research at gmail.com and tell us a footnote uh, that we should be covering. What have we missed out? What have we uh, yet to explore? What do you need unpacking? Let us know. Um, you can also use that handle, that's fananimresearch, um, uh, to access our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram uh, uh, handles and take part in the conversation there. Otherwise, that's been us for the, uh, this episode and we'll see you next time. Bye.